Again, it's great to see you all. If you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Titus chapter 1. As we prepare to look at this message I've entitled, Bringing Order to the Church. Titus is only three chapters long, and it's in the last third of the New Testament, just before the book of Philemon, from which Pastor Jeremy preached this last Sunday. And again, we're making this stop in our summer series, Don't Miss This One. Whereas Pastor Jeremy said, we're looking one by one at some of the shortest books in all of the Bible. Lord willing, we're going to be parked right here in Titus until early August, learning today about the role and responsibilities of the men who are chosen to serve as elders in the church. I'm pretty sure I've, I've preached from the same section of God's Word at least twice, and both of those times being at the installation service of fellow pastors. And that's entirely appropriate because Titus is part of the pastoral epistles. It's one of three books that the Apostle Paul wrote to give pastors specific instructions on how they're to shepherd the church. As we made our way through this series, we've been attempting each time we begin a new book to give you a one-sentence summary. And here's our goal of it for Titus. Local church leadership is responsible for teaching by word and example that what we believe to be true will be faithfully demonstrated in our behavior. You think that one through, and, and I guarantee you it will make sense. Let me say it one more time. What we believe to be true will be faithfully demonstrated in our behavior. Earlier this summer, it was very helpful for me as pastor helped us work through a passage by identifying not only a problem that needed to be addressed in a specific church, but also the Christ-honoring solution to that problem provided for us in the Word of God. And, and taking that same approach to our passage today, we could say the problem identified was that Christians on the island of Crete were being deceived and even upset by false teachers. False teachers who were contradicting the sound teaching of the gospel while also accumulating what the Apostle Paul referred to as shameful gain from those who were being deceived. So that's the problem. What is the proposed solution? Well, Paul said to Titus, I am leaving you there in order to set these churches in order. And then he outlines here in chapter 1 some very specific requirements for each church's elders, while also informing these churches of the responsibility that the Lord has entrusted to these leaders. So with the Lord's help, that's what we're going to look at between now and the end of our message. For all of you who are watching online, we have included an outline of this message on our church's website, as well as a link in the video description of today's service on our YouTube channel. Okay, as we're going to see, this letter begins, Titus 1, verse 1, with a gospel-centered greeting. Paul a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That word apostle means sent one who does the sender's business. So Paul is saying, I am writing to you representing Jesus 
for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And just who are the elect? Those who respond in saving faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ, who humbly turn from their sins and place their faith in the crucified and risen Savior. And to what end? Well, middle of verse 1 says, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now this is a big, big part of why Paul wrote to Titus. We're going to see him throughout this letter emphasize and then re-emphasize that what we believe to be true about ourselves and about our relationship with Jesus Christ is going to be demonstrated in our behavior. And here in this introduction, Paul writes that true knowledge is going to result in godliness. Not just bigger heads full of more facts, but changed lives. And uh, here's how Pastor has sometimes described that process in previous Sundays. First of all, we hear the truth. Second, we understand it. Third, we believe it. And fourth, we apply or obey it. Here understand, believe, and then as an act of the will, we obey the truth delivered to us in God's word. Okay, now to verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. I like this. I, I really like this. If, if you're one of God's elect, you were on the Lord's heart even before the foundation of the world, before the ages began. And, and church, I hope you know and that you can say with all confidence that because of your faith in Jesus and the finished work of the cross, you share that same hope of eternal life that Paul is writing of. And if not, friend, may this be the day of your salvation. Verse 3. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now it's quite apparent as we read these words that at some unnamed time, Titus had been led to faith by Paul who as a result became his spiritual father, and, and that the two of them enjoyed a special and close relationship as a result. Which makes me kind of curious. I, I'm just wondering, who could say the same of you, that you are their spiritual father, spiritual mother? You know, for a lot of you, it's, it's your friend or, or a classmate, somebody you went to school with, perhaps one of your co-workers, a member of your family might be a child or perhaps a whole bunch of children consider you their spiritual father or spiritual mother. Nearly nine out of ten people who profess faith in Jesus Christ were introduced to the Savior not by a pastor, not by an evangelist, but by someone pretty much like you, someone who prayed for them, and cared for them, and then loved them enough to share the good news of the gospel with them. In our sermon also, we've included an application question at the end of the introduction. And that question is this. You might not consider yourself an evangelist, but how is Jesus using you to help other people understand the gospel 
and their need of salvation. You know, all of you who are watching in person tonight are a member of this church family, and you know that pretty much the main reason this church exists is that others come to know Christ and then join together with us in making him known. So beloved of God, I want to encourage you in this. You don't have to be an expert to be a witness for Jesus. You don't have to know everything in order to make him known. In reality, each and every one of us who's had our heart touched by the Holy Spirit has a story to tell. And the Bible says that you and I should always be prepared to tell others about the reason for that hope. So, if you don't like your answer to this question, let me rephrase it a little bit. What can you, what will you in fact begin doing so Jesus can use you to help others understand both the good news of the gospel and their need of salvation. And, and if you need help with that, if you want help with that, Pastor Jeremy or myself would be grateful to help you. But again, it's not all that complicated. Prayer, care, share. We can do this. Jesus wants us to do this, and the Holy Spirit will help us to do this if we're humble enough to fully rely on him. Boiling this greeting down to its very essence, you see it's about the importance of the word of God in the life of every believer. And now Paul makes sure that Titus knew and remembered that his ministry was not to be a ministry apart from the church. Rather, his ministry was to be an indispensable part of the church. Verse 5, Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Did you know that the church is one of just three institutions ordained by God? It's the church, the family, and government. And when Jesus established the church, he entrusted it with both the message and ministry of the gospel. And that's a big part of why these instructions that we're reading about today are so important, not just to Titus, not just to the churches in Crete, but to all churches and all pastors in every generation since Jesus ascended into heaven. You see, Jesus doesn't have a plan B to reach this world. We are at the church, his church. We don't know with any certainty who planted these churches Titus was tasked with organizing, but in Acts chapter 2, we read that there were men from Crete who were in Jerusalem three decades before on the day of Pentecost. And if you already knew that, you probably remember that on that day, these religious pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem to worship the one true God didn't simply hear the gospel being preached to them in Hebrew, the language of their Jewish faith, or Greek, the language of commerce. No, these men who heard the good news of the gospel were hearing it in their own heart language, the very words and the way of expression they had learned as children. And you know what I think about that? It just makes me even more filled with gratitude and appreciation that our God is that kind and that caring. He wanted all those who were gathered there that day to hear and understand and believe the gospel. 
the island of Crete. Probably some of you are geography students. You know a little bit about it. It's located off the southern coast of Greece. From end to end, it's about 160 miles long. And though you can't tell by looking at it from this picture, it's also known as the island of 100 cities. Okay. Now, when I first heard of that, made made me think about my home state of Minnesota. You know why that is? <laughs> Where would you rather go on vacation? The land of 10,000 lakes or the island of 100 cities? I don't know which you would choose. I'll just say Minnesota would be a whole lot more affordable. <laughs> Now, in the following verses, Paul makes it clear that those who are chosen to lead the church should be living lives that are worthy of imitation. And that the quality of an elder's life could be determined by examining both his conduct and his character. And I think we should look at what specifically Paul finds worth mentioning as character requirements for a church's elders. And he starts in verse 6. If anyone is above reproach. Above reproach. That's another way of saying there's nothing he could be accused of doing that would bring disgrace to the name of Jesus even if someone tried. Next, the husband of one wife. Translated in some of your Bibles as faithful to his wife. And I, I like that part. It, is, it wasn't just that, that this elder is still married to the wife of his youth, but that his marriage lined up with God's instructions to all believers. Ephesians chapter 5, that his marriage honors Jesus. And that's so important, critically important, because a husband's relationship with his wife is to give those who are observing it an opportunity to see the gospel in action. Specifically, when a husband loves his wife as Jesus loves the church and gave himself up for her. An elder's relationship with his wife should cause others to see and understand the wisdom of God and the love of Christ as they see it expressed in a tangible way. His grace extended to his wife even on the days she doesn't deserve it. That's so very important that the elders in our church, in fact, every church, are living lives worthy of imitation. Next qualification in this passage, you notice it's also family-related. It says his children are believers. This is normally applied to children who are living at home under their parents' authority. In other parts of God's word, this word believers is translated as faithful and reliable. Godly dads and moms can influence their children's actions, but one thing moms and dads can't do, no matter how much we might wish we could, is control our children's response to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. I've, I've told some of you uh, a story. It happened several years ago. A pastor friend of mine in another small town had to do a funeral for a young man. He died 
in an accident tragically in his 20s. And at that service, all sorts of his friends showed up to be there to honor the memory of their friend. And like the guy who was being buried, most of the young men and young women who were at the church that day had drifted away from the church after graduation. And my pastor friend thought, well, this is going to give me an opportunity. After the service in the fellowship hall, he went and sat down various tables talking to different men, talking to different women, and asking them why. What had happened? Why was the church so important to you in your growing up years? And now that you become adult, you've just drifted away. And he said there were a number of answers, but most of them could be summed up this way. Yeah, I'll admit, when I was a kid, church was important to my family. And my family, we went on Sunday mornings, and we went on Sunday nights. And when I got old enough, I went on Wednesday nights to be a part of youth group. And I liked it. It was fun. But when I got to high school, I started thinking about what I was doing and why I was doing it. And I looked at my dad's example. And I came to the conclusion that it seemed like God was important to my dad for about an hour and a half every week. But the rest of his week, he was just living for himself. I don't know about you, but that's troubling. You know, you dads and you grandpas have a great opportunity to demonstrate to your children just how much you love Jesus. The heart overflow, the words that come out of your mouth. Do your kids hear you explaining to them why you're willing to give up this and that in order to make more of Jesus? It's an opportunity we have. And as elders, we kind of set the tone for the church. In addition, next on the list is children are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Like the rest of the church, the elders' children not only see their dad living a life worthy of imitation, for the most part, they're choosing to follow in their dad's footsteps. In another one of Paul's epistles, he would have said it this way. Dad's, if I paraphrase, dad's got a handle on things at home. As 1 Timothy 3 verse 5 asks, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now to verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Now we hear the leader referred to not as an elder, but rather as an overseer. One of my commentaries suggests that the word elder would have been more in line with the Hebrew understanding of leadership, while the word overseer is more reflective of Greek culture. To any extent, an overseer was a person who had been placed in charge of the household or the estate of the owner. Okay, so he doesn't own any of his employer's property. He's simply responsible for caring for it. Same idea here. The church doesn't belong to the men who serve as elders or even to the membership of the body. The church belongs to Jesus. And those who lead it as his stewards are ultimately accountable to him. Verse 7 now, middle of verse 7. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, 
or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable. And not just the people who are willing and able to return that hospitality. Bible also says here he must be a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In other words, these guys are supposed to practice what they preach. And, and they're not going to do it perfectly, but these are men who are living with the aim of honoring Jesus, who are modeling for the church what it means to love and follow their Savior. Not content, again, just to hear the word, but to faithfully put it into practice. The Word of God is making a point here again that I don't believe is just for leaders. It's actually for, for all of us. Again, what you believe is going to be expressed in your behavior. So let me ask you a question that's also included in your application guide all the way at the end of the sermon notes. What do your attitudes and your actions reveal about your walk with Jesus? And what do they reveal about what you believe to be true about the gospel? Your actions, your attitudes, what do they reveal? Have you ever had a job review or performance evaluation? Most all of us have. <laughs> I was thinking even the young people are probably at one point going to have a performance evaluation unless uh, maybe they're a real self-starter and, and are their own boss throughout their entire life. I firmly believe that if your boss is doing his or her job, there shouldn't be any major surprises at one of these meetings. And, and that's, I believe, why part of, part of the reason why these character qualifications are written down for us in black and white. So both the leadership of the church and those who in the future would help to choose their leaders knew and understood the conduct and character requirements God had established for those who would lead his church. Now, some of you men who are here tonight or watching online probably never aspire to be an elder. But each of you has been given a responsibility to serve. I want to say that again, but broaden who I'm speaking to. God wants and expects each and every member of the church, every man, every woman, every young person, in fact, who names Jesus as Lord and Savior to be involved in ministry. He's given each one of us a gift that he wants you to use to further the work of his kingdom. So I'm not letting you off the hook on these character qualifications. In fact, I want you to think about this. This is your application question. If, after you finish watching this message today, Jesus sat down with you and assessed you for a special position he had designed, he had in mind, just for you, and he used this list of qualifications to evaluate how ready you were, what areas of your life would he suggest need some attention? I'm guessing most of us wouldn't have to think of that very long, and I'm not asking you to answer it out loud, but I would encourage you, 
even sometime today, to ask God to show you. And then ask for his help, his direction in changing. Surprisingly here, we come to the only qualification for this position that's actually a skill. It's found in verse 9. He must hold firm. Hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, which serves as an introduction to the second half of this chapter. If you look at the heading of this part of the message, you'll see it's entitled, A Leader Must Fulfill His God-Given Role and Responsibilities. And, and the first of these responsibilities, according to verse 9 again, is to maintain a firm grip on the truth as he has been taught. Now, why is it necessary to give emphasis to this instruction? Because we evidently need to be reminded. Okay? Middle of a nine. So that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Here's a helpful definition of sound doctrine. Is accurate doctrine lived out. Uh, I wish it weren't the case, but there are a lot of people in our churches today who know a lot about this book, but have lost interest in actually living it out. According to the biographical Bible, someone who had a lot more time than I have determined there are 3,237 people mentioned in the Bible. We are given details in the lives of only about a hundred of them. And of those 100, only a third finished well. And of the two-thirds who didn't finish well, most failed in the second half of their lives. Which makes me ask the question, a question every one of us should answer, if I keep on going the way I am going, how's my story going to end? Last uh, Sunday afternoon, I got a text message uh, from a member of our church family, and he says, Pastor, I want to thank you for at the beginning of the year standing up in front of the whole church and encouraging us to read through at least the New Testament this year. He said that Project 345 has been great for me. Okay, I've been listening to what God says in his word and I'm finding out that they dealt with a lot of the same struggles and frustrations and troubles back then that I deal with today. And, and he's finding how practical this book is, this word is, these instructions are for life. And it greatly encouraged me as a pastor because I was hearing from a man who sounded pretty determined that he would finish well. Back again to Titus. Not only is an elder to be a capable teacher, but he is also teachable. First part of verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And that's part of why I like to say I am enrolled in Christ's lifelong school of learning. I want to keep learning. And every one of us should want to keep learning as God patiently, purposefully conforms us to the image of his Son. Now Paul gets to the why. 
which relates, relates again to the problem in so many of these churches. Verse 10, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. This appears to be a reference to the false teaching that if you wanted to be saved and you weren't Jewish, you first had to convert to Judaism before you could be born again. Paul says, verse 11, they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. As I thought long and hard about this passage and how I was going to communicate it with you, God brought to mind how this part of Titus is illustrating some of the functions of a pastor that Paul included in another of the pastoral epistles. We've got it up on the big screen, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says, all scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God, in fact, the woman of God, in fact, the young person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. As we see four responsibilities named here in this verse, they get fleshed out in these parts of Titus. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. And so we hear that a godly leader, an obedient leader, a leader who not only loves Jesus, but loves his church, can be passive or overprotective of the feelings of anyone in his church family who might be getting off course or who has already chosen to go another way. No, he has to follow God's plan. In all my years of attending and serving in the church, I'd say that nearly all of the conflict, all of the complacency, all of the compromise that was taking place that can affect and even infect any local church comes in part when the elders fail in their Role. As one wise pastor once said, it's, it's not the churches that drift, it's their leaders. Pretty much every week that um, Pastor Jeremy and I are both in the office, we have a meeting, and one of the things that we reasons we have this meeting is because we don't want to drift. We want to follow God's plan. So we guide our discussion and prayers for one another and our church by using this agenda. We organize what we're going to cover, how we're going to pray, what needs to be decided based on these four factors, caring for our own hearts, protecting and caring for the flock, leading the flock, and then also teaching the flock. We do this again. We follow God's plan because we love the church and we want what's best for the church. 
And we also want to finish well. In the final verses of this chapter, Paul gives Titus a description of the kind of fruit that's being produced in the lives of these false teachers. I want you to hear this because Jesus tells us it's important that you and I be able to identify a tree. And he says we can do it by looking at the fruit. Good tree, good fruit. Bad tree, bad fruit. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Church, what kind of fruit is hanging from your tree? You know, I'll tell you right now, Jesus is not going to be impressed or distracted by nice-looking leaves in your life. He wants to use you and the gift he's given you to honor his name by blessing the church and expanding the influence of his kingdom. Uh, before we close in song, I'd like you to bow with me just for a few moments. And, and Lord, we're going to allow your Holy Spirit to keep working in our hearts. Uh, you've encouraged us in some wonderful ways. We're grateful, Lord, for our church's elders. We're grateful for the example of, of Mark and Ron and Lynn and Bob, <laughs> guys who would not claim to be perfect, but are modeling for us well what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to live out his plan on purpose, for the purpose of bringing praise and honor to your name. Thank you, Lord, for our church's elders. Thank you for those in our church who may aspire to serve in this office at some point. Thank you for those who are, who are patiently investing in the lives of these men, helping them understand both their giftedness and your plan, your purpose, your desires, not just for this church, but for all churches, that we never lose sight of making the main thing the main thing. And God, for all the rest of us who are, who are either listening online or are gathered here in this space right now, we want to ask you to show us how you want to use us in the gifts you have blessed us with.